Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Christ the Teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling us to cast out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to Him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your host. And today, we are going to be talking with Dr. Brett Sulkel, the Archdiocesan Theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina in Saskatchewan, Canada. Brett is also responsible for deacon formation. He is the author of Can Catholics and Catholics and Evangelicals Agree About Purgatory and the Last Judgment? How Far Can We Go? A Catholic Di- a Guide to Sex and Dating. And that one was written with Leah Perot. And Transubstantiation, Theology, History, and Christian Unity. His newest book is Educating for Eternity a teacher's companion for making every class Catholic. Brett is soft after as a speaker on many topics uh, related to the Catholic faith. He serves the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops as a member of the Roman Catholic Evangelical Dialogue in Canada. His weekly podcast with uh, Deacon Eric Jarash is called Thinking Faith. Brett, his wife Flannery, and their seven children live in Regina, Saskatchewan. Brett was a guest on Follow to Lead last summer, looking at Catholic schools as engines of evangelization through the lens of his new book, Educating for Eternity. Uh, He will, by the way, be a keynote speaker at our summit next year in Houston. Brett, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Father Randy. It's good to be here. And uh, Brett, as we begin our discussion, I first want to invite our audience that if they have not done so, it would really be good for them to stop right now and listen to your previous episode with us, uh, which is episode 63 on August 18th of Follow to Lead. And that will be a good context for for today's discussion. Now, during your last visit, we took a good look at your book, Educating for Eternity, a Teacher's Companion for Making Every Class Catholic. But it was kind of one of those 30,000-foot views. And at that time, we talked about doing a deep dive into the chapter on science in a follow-up program. That's why we're here today. And uh, let's start this way. Why is it important to take a special look at science? Yeah, I think science is, if you had to pick one subject where young people have been given the impression that faith has, has nothing to say, or maybe that science even uh counters what faith has to say 
science would be the one. I mean, there's there's plenty to deal with in the other subject areas, and and there's you know there, the book has eight uh, eight chapters on specific subjects. Um, but I say at the beginning of the science chapter, you know, Catholic science teachers are on the front lines uh, because kids are given, well, not only kids, but <laughs> that's who we're dealing with in the schools. Young people are given the so much false information and false ideas about science and its relationship with faith uh, that if you're a, a science teacher in a Catholic school, you need to know your science. But you also need to be developing your expertise and the relationship between faith and science. Uh, and even some historical stuff, you know, the role of the church in the development of the sciences and these kinds of things. Uh, if we really want to present a consistent message across the subject areas and, and show how faith and reason are integrated, science is is just a real key sort of playing field. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It just seems that especially in today's society, um, you know, I was thinking about this the other day in anticipation of are being together for this podcast. Uh, one of the comments I, I, I still hear a lot as uh, I'm around in society is when it comes to talking about religion, people just use this, this mantra. I choose to believe science, right? You know, it's, it's like, there's these uh, two uh, opposites, uh, these polarities that cannot uh, in any way, shape, or form be uh, reconciled. And I think in your book, you describe it as a conflict thesis. Right. Yeah, well, There's the conflict thesis is, is a way of describing one way that the relationship between faith and science has been articulated. And there's, there's a few key sort of texts uh, that are over 100 years old um, that sort of um, frame things as faith and science being in, in conflict with one another. One of them actually famously is where the, the myth of the flat earth is perpetuated. So for people think uh, that medieval Europeans didn't know the earth was round. And the story goes that Columbus figured out that the earth was round and that's why he decided to sail west to go east. And people said, no, no, you're going to drop off the face of the planet. Um, of course, this is this is all completely false. Uh, yeah. Medieval Europeans knew that the world was round. Just read Dante. Uh, if you read Dante's Inferno, the globe, you know, the, the world is a sphere. Um, ancient Greeks actually had a pretty good guess at the circumference of the earth by like sticking sticks in the sand in, in the desert <laughs> in North Africa and like measuring the shadows. Um, so it, this was, you know, this is one of the classic sort of bits of the mythology of the conflict uh, thesis. But it's basically become something that maybe even the majority of people in contemporary society think is that um, faith and, and reason or, or religion and science are inherently opposed to one another. And this has a bunch of like um, related ideas. So, for example, uh, that Christianity was a sort of roadblock to the development of science and, it, and the development of science required a sort of working against uh, Christian uh ideas the the actual history is exactly the opposite it's only christian ideas that lead to the development of science and if you i mean just look at it like where does science emerge it's only where theologians have been thinking carefully about causality in the natural world and all that kind of thing for a few hundred years beforehand um you know we can go into some of the details there but but basically this conflict thesis uh says uh science and faith are opposed uh and then includes a whole bunch of um, mythology, it, it invents, you know, out of whole cloth, whole historical 
uh, episodes like the Columbus thing and, and a bunch of presuppositions, uh, you know, like the one I just described. Yeah. You know, uh, you have a section on Galileo and I think, again, that's one area where, uh, people don't have the story correct. Right. In terms of the church, yeah, again, saying that the church was always attempting to block scientific discovery, uh, is, is such an, uh, obtuse saying it doesn't have any place in real truth, you know, in history, what, what happened to Galileo? What, what was going on back then? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big, complicated story, and the church doesn't end up looking great. Like, the, the Pope and Galileo were both guys with substantial egos. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and the interpersonal story is really about a couple people who got in a public spat. Um, but from the science point of view, uh, what, what's really interesting, and I, I recommend you do this in a Catholic school, Galileo's proofs don't actually work. Um, he He couldn't prove that the earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. And the best scientists of his day, uh, who were mostly Jesuits, actually, uh, they knew his proofs didn't work. Um, uh, but he, but he, he was still right. His intuition was right, but his proofs didn't work. And so, uh, you know, the church said, well, we're, we, we can't endorse something that's not proven. In fact, it was proven hundreds of years later in a more definitive way. So, right. I mean, one thing you could do in a Catholic school is like actually look at the proofs that Galileo offered, look at why they didn't work, and look what ended up actually working in the end. And by the way, the, the scientists at the time knew what one thing that would work, uh, but they didn't have strong enough telescopes to do it yet, something called a stellar parallax. And I'm not an expert to go into all the details, but um, the point is, uh, Galileo didn't prove his case. He promised uh, something about how he would you know, say things with discretion and whatever. But what he ended up doing is writing a book where he put the Pope's preferred position in in the mouth of one of the characters who was actually a moron. Um, and, and then things sort of went downhill from there. Uh, Galileo spent the, the end of his life under house arrest. Uh, he wasn't sent to prison. He wasn't tortured. He certainly wasn't executed or burned at the stake, though some people seem to think he was. Um and and here's but here's the real kicker. Uh, and by the way, I've done a whole podcast with someone who 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 just knows the science and we and the history in in more detail. I'm doing a real quick flyover here, uh, so you could look up the Thinking Faith episode on on Galileo. Um, but the real kicker is that Galileo himself uh, believes what the Catholic Church believes about the relationship between faith and science. And the whole mythology around Galileo is this great rebel against the church yeah. um, completely misses the fact that he's actually a pretty good proponent of the church's attitude towards faith and science. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine was the head of the what, what, what today we call uh, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. It was recently the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Back then it was called the Holy Inquisition, which conjures up things in our imagination that aren't always the case and certainly not. In, in this case with, with Bellarmine and, and Galileo. But Bellarmine and Galileo basically agreed about the relationship between scientific evidence and scripture. And they both agreed that, look, scripture uh, seems to say some things, uh, like the, the earth is stationary, for example, but that when it's saying those things, it's not trying to make a scientific claim. Uh, 
And it's been interpreted this way because of what we think we know about the universe heretofore. But if we were to have definitive proof about the universe that went the other way, uh, those kinds of things would need to be reinterpreted. And they're not central to the life of faith or, or you know, anything like that. They're, they're, they're more historically contingent. And, and Bellarmine and Galileo both had this understanding, which is essentially the Catholic Church's uh, understanding to this day. It was just sort of like, yeah, be careful not to overinterpret. Um, and, and, and then don't like take things that aren't proven and make everyone rejig everything, uh, on a hypothesis that's not settled, you know, it was, it was really a prudential kind of a thing. Um, how the Pope behaved as a, as a person with an ego, well, there were places where he overshot just like Galileo himself, but in terms of the teaching of the church, you know, we get this impression that, okay, science comes along and then the church is on its back foot and it has to re- think all of this stuff about the relationship between scripture and revelation. And we're constantly sort of um, backpedaling. And, and in fact, that's like what we believe is basically what Galileo and Bellarmine believed at the time, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because, and again, you bring this up in your book that uh, this, this is like a tapestry through history regarding Aristotle, Copernicus, you know, and the list keeps going on and on where, Again, it, it the criticisms are that the church keeps blocking progress when, in fact, it's more the church wanting to make sure, I guess, that what is being declared is, is truthful and can be substantiated. It's not just the opinion of someone. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the church itself doesn't pretend to teach scientific right. truth. It's not within its, its um, sort of range of expertise. Right. But there are particular places where scientific claims at least look like they might have impact on on a teaching of the church. Right. And so uh, then then the church has an interest. But in but on scientific questions, the church defers to the scientists. Uh, the church was not saying um, Galileo is wrong because the Bible says the opposite of what Galileo says. The church was saying, let's study a scientific question carefully and Galileo's hypothesis is interesting, but it's not proven yet. So not, let's not act like it is. Right. Um, and the really interesting thing is the, the the worldview that is overthrown, not so much by Galileo, but first by Copernicus, right? The, the, the geocentric, right? The earth at the center vision is not the Bible. It's Ptolemy. It's it's ancient Greek science, which which the church took on as part of its sort of cosmology because it was the best available science. If you read the Old Testament, uh, there's no geocentrism. The, the earth is a landmass on pillars under a dome. Yeah. You know? That's, and if we were insisting on, on a, a literalistic biblical reading of cosmology, that's the picture, not the Ptolemaic system. So the whole idea that it, in, in fact, you know, the line I mentioned earlier that would have to be reinterpreted that seems to put the earth at the center. Well, that, that just that happened to work nicely with Ptolemy, but that in itself had to be a reinterpretation once Ptolemy came on the scene long after the Old Testament, you know, gave us a different picture. Uh, and so the, the, you know, the idea that the Bible has a geocentric Ptolemaic thing, and that's why the church was holding on to it against Galileo. It's just it's just historically false. It's just not mm -hmm. how things went at all. Right. One of the things it seems that. uh is being 
not really directly declared, but inferred in, in what you're saying in the book is that really part of the role of a good science teacher is they've got to know the backstory behind a lot of these things so that when these these ideas come up, which they normally do, that they right. have a, a good way of explaining it. Like, I think that it's wonderful to be able to say, well, uh, actually, Galileo's proofs don't work, you know, right. um, because he's been kind of put up on a pedestal uh, as, you know, a victim of uh, church censorship at a time when he was breaking new information open. And Right, uh, right. Yeah, knowing the history is super key because we're, we're told about what happened with Galileo in the sort of popular understanding, and it just doesn't map onto the reality. Another example I would suggest, and I go into this a little in the book too, the, the, the story we're told about evolution is that this is, this is a major setback for Christianity, right? Christianity, like Darwin comes along and everyone has to rejig everything and there's this big resistance and whatever. Now, it's easy for us in North America to think that because there are contemporary, you know, Christians in North America who, who really push back hard against evolution because they think it's contrary to the Bible. The interesting thing is at the at the time of Darwin, the most important living Catholic theologian is, is John Henry Cardinal Newman, uh, who's now uh, a saint. And uh, he just says, oh, yeah, that that would be fine. Um you know, it looks like uh, maybe God did it in a different way than we thought heretofore, but isn't it an interesting way? Wow, God's pretty amazing. <laughs> like, that, he wasn't blown away. He, the idea that, you know, it took millions and millions more years than we thought the earth was old doesn't even seem to register as a problem for, for Newman. You know, so this idea that it ran into this huge um, resistance certainly wasn't true within Catholicism. In fact, most resistance to Darwin shows up long after when, when Christians start reading uh, Genesis. Now, typically not Catholics, but some of our, our evangelical uh, brothers and sisters start reading Genesis as a science textbook, and then Darwin becomes a problem. But if you yeah. read the patristics, if you read uh, St. Augustine, He's got a great thing that all science teachers, Catholic science teachers should read St. Augustine's on the literal meaning of Genesis, where he basically says, don't read this like a science textbook, because if you do, you're going to say things that embarrass yourself. And he, he laments, you know, when Christians start talking about things that the scientists actually know, and we embarrass ourselves. It's really remarkable to read, you know, Augustine writing this 1600 years ago, and it could apply to today. But See, we, we could study in history class the history of um, the Christian response to Darwin, which, which, is, which is not the way it, it goes in the story that we're normally told. It's not a story of Darwin comes along and the church has to rejig everything and is constantly sort of in retreat. Um, it's, what we know in North America as sort of, you know, creationism doesn't even emerge until later. It's it, it's its own sort of social and historical phenomena, but it's not what the church always taught. And you can mm -hmm. go read the fathers of the church and see how they read Genesis. And it's it, they're, they're not interested in the same kinds of questions that we see creationists interested in today, right? Mm -hmm. And there uh, there's a, a differentiation that you make in the book between evolution and evolutionism 
Right. What What is that? Yeah. So by evolution, I just mean that the scientific theory and the church has never, you know, had a big problem with that. But the church has registered concern that some people think evolution has philosophical implications that it doesn't have. So, for example, if someone says, um, you know, evolution, now that we know how life on Earth came to take the form it took by evolution, therefore, we don't need the God hypothesis anymore. Well, that's, it's not evolution that says that. That's evolutionism. That's a philosophy that's that's appealing to the scientific theory of evolution to make a claim that that theory can't make. It's make, it's not making a scientific claim. It's making a philosophical claim and, and not a very good one. Um, right. And so the, the church says, like, be careful. Uh, you know, let science answer science questions because that's what science is good at. But when people start pretending that science can answer philosophy questions, um, sometimes they're, you know, we want to be well informed by the science when we're answering our philosophy questions, but we also want to stay in our lanes here. And if someone is saying, you know, that evolution proves God doesn't exist or some nonsense like that, well, that's bad philosophy. And we would call that evolutionism, right? That's, that's, that's one example. There's other things people claim uh, about evolution that are that are problematic. You know, you you we may have heard about social Darwinism, right? Which says like, okay, survival of the fittest. Let's apply that to our social structures, which is like exactly the opposite of the Beatitudes, right? Yeah. So and 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 then and some people will say, well, evolution can't be true because social Darwinism is morally bad. You know, like, well, that doesn't actually follow. Like that's bad philosophy too, right? So like. Let's let's learn the difference between philosophical questions and social questions and scientific questions and answer each according to their own sort of genre. Right. Um, one of the things I was wondering about as I was reading one of one of the areas that you uh, you broach is the uh, the area of intelligent design, which right. is uh, um, kind of a faith based approach to uh, to creation. Was that basically a posture that was a, uh, intending to address the philosophical more than the scientific well well the, yeah I, I address it within this this section uh so maybe I'll, I'll describe that section a little bit i call it the god of the gaps so there's a big philosophical problem uh that that christians can get ourselves into which is appealing to god to answer scientific questions when the science is not yet clear right so you can say okay um you know, I, I saw there's a famous example of this where a fellow said, you know, we don't understand the mechanism by which people become right handed or left handed. And so at that point, God must, you know, all this other stuff happens naturally as we understand it. But then God determines whether someone's right handed or left handed. And then like 10, 15 years later, we figured out the mechanism by which people become right handed or left handed. And then, you know, there's there's one less thing for God to do. So if your picture of God is as a substitute for, for scientific explanations, God's just always going to get smaller and smaller. The more that science learns, the less there is for God to do. And so, you know, Stephen Hawking essentially says like, hey, I can imagine how a universe pops into existence from nothing. Now, what he means by nothing is a bit of a problem because he's presuming, you know, um, constants of, of, you know, um, of various, you know, forces and powers and, and, you know, uh, so what he means by nothing is is not what philosophically I think you could actually call nothing. But anyways, he can imagine that and therefore there's nothing left for God to do. 
right? If God is just the gap filler in, in, in our scientific knowledge. So this is called the God of the gaps. And, and intelligent design says, look, there are certain steps in the evolutionary process that are too complex to have happened naturally. And so we're going to pause it that at those various steps where we can't yet see how natural selection could have achieved it, God had to reach in and sort of tweak, right? Um, and you're, you're like, you're betting on a losing horse. <laughs> you're like, if, if you, because because if you choose this one as the one, like, here's my proof for God, something in the mitochondria that I can't explain, right? Well, then, you know, someone comes along and explains that. And where where did God go? Right. So it's it's but it's not only is it a bad bet, it's just not ever how Christians have made arguments for God's existence ever. Like mm -hmm. if you read Thomas Aquinas's five ways, he nowhere does he say like, oh, there are things in nature I don't understand. Like we don't know about earthquakes or we don't know about water cycles or we don't know like we don't know these things. Therefore, God like that literally is not a serious part of the Christian argument for the existence of God ever. Um, because that's not the God we believe in. Like, we don't believe in God who's one more sort of power within creation that can just sort of do more. The, the whole scientific enterprise emerges in Western Europe in, in large part because theologians said God's causality is different than causality in nature. And nature's causality is given its own proper independence by God, and therefore you can study it because you you're not always appealing to miracles, actually. And so the whole the whole transcendence of God, which is in the Christian tradition, um, leads to the development of science, but mitigates against the sort of God of the gaps picture of God, you know, getting his fingers in and fixing things when they when when the natural causation doesn't work. And so that's the problem with intelligent design from a philosophical point of view, is it appeals to a kind of God that is not the God of the Christian tradition. And then from a rhetorical point of view, it's just betting on a losing horse. Because if you say, well, I can't explain this thing. Well, if next week someone explains it, your God just got smaller, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's not saying that, again, God is not involved in some way, but it's not like he's looking there and he kind of tweaking here and there and going, Oh, I need to adjust this. I need to adjust that. You know, he's not doing like a creation tune up as he goes along. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting to think one of the things I go into is, is the question of chance, right? So people worry that if there's, if there's genuine chance in nature, then God's will is going to get thwarted. And so then if if chance would have led to, you know, humans not evolving, for instance, then God would have to, like, at some point step in and just make sure everything worked out the way it, it's supposed to. And Thomas Aquinas actually says, no, no, the opposite is the problem. Strict necessity is a problem because then you don't have freedom. Right. And so. Right. Um, and, and we've always known about chance. We didn't need evolution to know about chance. Thomas Aquinas didn't know about evolution, but he knew about real chance, um, you know, you and I were both born because of a series of chance encounters between our parents and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? And we don't need evolution to know that. Um, but he says, look, God's causality can actually transcend chance. It's not limited by it. 
And moreover, actually, we can actually use chance uh, to achieve things and not be thwarted. So the example I use in the book is uh, games of chance. If I'm a casino, uh, if I'm a casino, I don't need to rig the dice to make money off a craps table. Um, it's, it's, I, I build the system so that the dice just behaving as dice without any interference will predictably produce a certain series of outcomes, right? I can do that and I'm just a human. Uh, so certainly God is not so limited that God can't achieve his aims through chance. And that's Thomas's point, right? God doesn't achieve his aims in spite of chance, God actually achieves his his aims through chance. Uh, and now you can say, well, you know, getting Father Randy and Brett here from four billion years out is a lot more complicated than a craps table. Yeah, it is. Um, but but my, you know, my example, I'm not the, you know, infinite power behind the universe. I'm just showing you that like my own intention and causality can transcend chance. So if I can do it, surely God can do it at a much greater, you know, degree or level than I can. In fact, an infinitely greater degree than I can, right? Yeah. It, in fact, in scripture, you see things like the casting of lots to be used to be to determine God's will. Right, you know, right. Which is chance. And God can work through that, right? Yeah. It's not, you don't say, oh my goodness, the wrong person drew the straw and God needs to do a reset or, you know, any of that kind of thing, right? right. Um, so it's it's just, it's a false problem. Uh, and and Thomas Aquinas says like the other problems way harder. If if we found that there was no chance, if we found that the universe was absolutely necessary and determined at every point, that would be a much bigger problem for Christian faith than a universe full of chance. Yeah, which basically is where Calvin was going with his double predestination. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah, the predestination is a whole other kind of uh, question. But but I I mean to not you know, totally go, go off. And I think the real point there is that chance in nature is analogous to freedom right. in humans. Right. And so yeah. the part of the problem at the time of the reformation is, um, gosh, this is a big question, but, but the, the question of freedom and providence, um, was harder to deal with at the time of the reformation because God, the, the conception of God, well, gosh, this is very hard. Um, God had become one thing among many in, in a lot of the leading philosophical schools. And that meant understanding God's transcendence was harder to do. And that meant that human freedom and divine providence looked like they were in more conflict than right. they looked to someone like Thomas Aquinas, who had a much more uh, elevated view of God's transcendence. Uh, no, that's a whole episode. But oh, anyways, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it is. There related, we go back. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, now another differentiation that you make is science to scientism. Kind of explain that for us, would you? Right. So anytime you put an ism at the end of something, it's it's sort of, it's like, it's it's a worldview or way of thinking, right? So science is, you know, I think we, we know what it is. It's, it's a way of approaching uh, the material world and making sense of it and, and discovering things. Um, scientism is not science. It's a philosophy and a bad one. It's a way of thinking about the role of science in the world. And one of the things it thinks is that science is the only legitimate form of knowledge. Now, this is kind of self-refuting because scientism itself pretends to be a legitimate form of knowledge, and it's not science. So, <laughs> um, yeah. but but what it 
does is it ends up reduce. It either says, you know, certain kinds of questions are just not real questions, right? So uh, a question about beauty or justice or something like that, you could say, well, if I can't answer them scientifically, then they're really just matters of opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could, the other way you can go with that is you can say, well, they must be reducible to a kind of scientific answer at some point. And if I haven't figured out yet how, I, I, I can sort of punt on that. But in the future, I will be able to determine questions of beauty or justice or these other kinds of things in purely scientific terms. It's often very naive about how science um, actually interacts with other ways of knowing. So here's an interesting example. Uh, think about science and public policy, right? During the pandemic, we're told, you know, follow the science. Well, I don't, I didn't see anyone saying don't follow the science. Like, like, yeah. right? like which group is that, right? Um, so when you say follow the science, what, what you're doing is you're subsuming scientific questions and then a whole bunch of other questions together and saying the science an- it gives us a straightforward answer, say, on a question of public policy. Well, let's let's take an example. You and I, Father Randy, let's say just for sake of argument, we're both completely convinced that a given vaccine is both safe and effective. We're, we think the science on that is is clear, as clear as it can be, you know, given the the constraints of time and whatever. Right. As clear as it can be, this vaccine is safe and effective. Now, someone comes along and says, um, we have a safe and effective vaccine. And you and I say, yes, yes, you do. And they say, now we need a vaccine mandate. Now, you and I might have very different views about how just or prudent a given mandate is. You might say, um, I support a mandate for healthcare workers, but for no one else. And I might say, actually, I think we may need a mandate for the whole population. Now, the, for, or and someone else might say, I don't think we should ever have mandates at all, right? And they might agree with us on the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, right? But so just saying follow the science is actually like camouflaging your claim and pretending mm-hmm. that your your prudential judgments on all kinds of broader questions that need other considerations are simply just covered by you know some some scientific data. Um, now, of course, we know the science itself is often disputed, and that makes things even more complicated. But I say even if we agree a hundred percent on the science, uh, mm-hmm. we still have to bring in other kinds of considerations. Is this just? What kind of backlash will it build you know, in the communities? What are we going to do with people who don't go along with it? How do we punish or coerce? Like th- th- Those are important questions that you can't just answer by saying, follow the science, right? Yeah. And it would seem to me, and <laughs> this would take a, a whole nother episode on uh, how to respond to somebody who says, well, I just believe the science. Uh, you know, because you'd have to go way off and begin to deal with that as. Right. Well, as a, a short answer could be, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you make them tell you what they think you believe that isn't the science. Yeah. And then you could actually discuss that. Right. Um, but I mean, that's the thing is no one is out there saying like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe this. And they might say this or that scientific claim appears dubious to me, but when they, when they try to make their case, what are they going to appeal to? science right they might be wrong but they're going to appeal to science to reject this or that scientific claim right and that which is interesting yeah it it all goes back to yeah we've got to get to the the uh 
the essentials of what you really mean by what you're saying at these points. Right. right. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that I think can happen and maybe you've seen it, uh, but it's so easy for us as people of faith, uh, even in teaching in the area of science to teach from a defensive posture, right? Where we're teaching with a shield <laughs> rather than a sword of truth. And we keep, uh, you know, just, uh, holding back and just saying, well, this is what they're saying. And, and, uh, but it's wrong. And, and here's, you know, and all of that, uh, it, that's, it's so dangerous for just a number of reasons for a thoroughly Catholic approach to teaching science, where should the teacher begin? I, I think that, and, and I would start like in kindergarten, uh, it's wonder at the, at the natural order of things and, and children naturally, like they get this, right? Like, get out and experience nature, be in awe at, at the beauty in nature, uh, the, the way things work together. Uh, like, and if, if all, you don't have to be explicit about its connection with, with faith at every point, but if the general context is, isn't God's creation beautiful and, and, and wonderfully ordered. And if there's this general sense of awe and this is done sort of unselfconsciously by people of faith so that it's just obvious to the young people growing up in that context that it's this isn't a problem. Um, then when they encounter specific questions that at least some people think are problems, right? If they discover the Big Bang, if they discover evolution, if they hear some story about Galileo, then their basic framework should allow them to say, oh, no, there's probably got to be more to this than the story I'm being told, right? Um, you know, if if kids know that the Big Bang was was uh, originally uh, theorized by a Catholic priest, uh, th then when someone tries to tell them that the Big Bang means God doesn't exist, that's just not going to pass the smell test. Yeah, you know, like if you've just <laughs> if you've just got that sort of worldview. So so I would say, yeah, just a, a general sense of of wonder and awe, and then I would say. Also, you know, I mentioned the causality thing, right? Divine and 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 preacherly causality that the theologians in the Middle Ages were sorting out that actually led to the development of science. I would say you can teach kids that when they're young. And that's going to help when evolution shows up on the radar when they're in middle school or early high school. I, I tell a story in the book of my, of my daughter, Dorothy, who asked me the question. Um, she said, you know, you and mom make babies, right? And I said, yes, yes, we do. And she said, but but God makes babies. I said, well, that's that's true as well. And she says, well, how does that work? Right. And so I said, you know, Dorothy, you love coloring. Bring me one of the things you colored. So she brought me, you know, a, a thing she had colored. And I said, did you color this? And she says, yes. And I said, did the markers color this? And I was ready to explain primary and secondary causality to my six-year-old. And I didn't even have to, because as soon as I said, did the markers color this? She just says, oh, I get it, right? That that it's not in conflict to, to think of two different things as contributing to something in their own proper way, right? Me and my wife contribute to to making babies in our own proper way. And God contributes in God's own proper way, just like Dorothy and the markers each contribute in their own proper right. way to, to coloring the thing. And so just, just 
you know, you don't even have to tell a kid, hey, that's a false dichotomy. They know what a false dichotomy is without even having the word, right? And and that's what Dorothy just said, oh, I get it. So you can do things like that, right? You can you can have little object lessons that just reinforce the relationship between God and creation. Uh, and, and then when the, you know, the big, and there's not even that many of the big questions. There's a small handful of questions where you need to know your history and your philosophy to really articulate well, you know, the church's position on evolution or the Big Bang or Galileo or those kind of things. Um, but but if we're set up well, those aren't they they actually aren't that hard. Now, if uh, a teacher is kind of uh, listening to this and and goes, this is really this is great stuff. I, I really love this. Obviously, the first thing I would say is, well, go get the book. <laughs> right and look at it in greater detail are there other really good resources that you recommend in terms of where teachers can go in the area of science yes uh so there's a few really great articulators of this that are all over the internet stephen barr is is at the top of my list he's a catholic physicist i actually reference him in the book he has a little booklet called the myth of conflict which is just excellent. I, I highly recommend it, but you can find articles of his. If you just Google Stephen Barr, science and faith, Barr with two R's, Stephen, I think with a PH, um, uh, he's a great place to start. Um, the uh, the Dominicans in Washington have a really neat YouTube channel called Aquinas 101. It oh, deals that's a excellent. Lot yeah. With, with these, ki these kinds of questions around causality and that sort of thing. So they, they have a philosophical approach, uh, a Thomistic philosophical approach to questions of science. They deal with things other than science, but science is one of their main areas of focus. Uh, and they're short little videos, seven, eight minute, you know, little illustrated video clips that, that you could check out on various scientific questions. I just posted one in my Facebook group this morning, actually. Um, so I have a Facebook making every class Catholic. You could join there. I share science stuff, but also lots of other stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's the director of the Vatican Observatory, has some really great uh, lectures. He's also a very entertaining speaker, uh, has some great lectures you can watch on YouTube. Um, so those would at least be a handful of starting places. Uh, Kenneth um, Miller is a Catholic biologist who's written some good books. Uh, he's actually he's actually um, written a, a sort of basic, I think, college textbook in biology. Mm -hmm. um, but he wrote a book called Finding Darwin's God. Um, quite good. I would say there's one or two places where I wouldn't agree 100 percent with Kenneth Miller, but but still a ton of really good stuff in there. Um, yeah. So the, the the thing is, we're not short on resources here. Oh, uh, the Magis Center with. Uh, I was going to just say, um, yeah, with Robert, Robert Spitzer. Robert Spitzer. There's yeah. I mentioned a video. It's an incredible video with a biologist from Franciscan University of Steubenville named Daniel Kubler on. Now, what is it? Um, evolution. What's the word? It's when it's when two different things evolve like bats evolve wings and birds evolve wings, but one didn't evolve them from the other. Like they were independent, convergent evolution. There's a mm -hmm. fantastic video on the Magis Center website with Daniel Kubler on convergent evolution. It's, it's so good. Um, yeah, we're not short of resources in this area, um, but those are a handful of the ones that I think are, are pretty solid. One of the things that was interesting when we had, we had Robert Spitzer on uh, the podcast uh, back in October. And one of the things he mentioned uh, in the area of science is that 
in their research, 66% of, of the scientists that were surveyed believed in a higher being. Right, right. And, yeah. and of, of that, uh, if they were, I think, under the age of, I think it was 35, it went up to 73%, almost three-fourths. It's fascinating how that would that would be you would be you would expect it to be going the other way, right? You would expect the older generation exactly. to be more theistic and the younger to be more atheistic, given that the narrative that science is sort of slowly but surely replacing God as as an explanation for the natural world and the various features of it, right? Um so obviously it's that's just not happening. Uh, you know, um and I know, I mean, lots of scientists who, who who speak about science as an encounter with God, right? As a kind of mystical encounter, um, because the beauty and the order of the universe is just so apparent to them as, right. they, as they understand it more and better, right? So, um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots, even in the history of science, of various scientists who've thought and said really interesting things about the relationship between science and religion, not all of them, which would be fully compatible with the Catholic view, but even Albert Einstein, you know, said some things that are really fascinating about uh, faith and, and reason and that kind of thing right. that are that are not the standard narrative that we hear, even if they're not, you know, we, we shouldn't try to squeeze Einstein into a Catholic box and say he has a fully Catholic articulated vision of God or something like that. But it, it's just a counterexample to the to the false narrative about faith and science that were that were given, right? So, you know, in this podcast, I, I sort of feel, uh, in a sense, like a pelican. <laughs> we're going along, and we dive in, and we get a piece of fish out of the, and then we right. come back up, and we get another one. You know, uh, we've we've talked about a lot of really great stuff. Again, uh, I really want to encourage our our audience to pick up the book and just really go through it and use it as a stepping stone to uh, the broader picture. But uh, as, as we kind of do this dive bombing, is there anything we've not covered, Brett, that you think would be really important to highlight? You know, I, I'm just thinking of another resource that I should have mentioned. Uh, Christopher Baglow at the McGrath Center at the University of Notre Dame. Yes. Is an excellent resource on this. And I would particularly commend, because he's written a textbook for high schools uh, called Faith, Reason, and Science. It's And it's excellent. It's just, it's really good. Uh, so there are whole schools that build, it's not just uh, that they teach science from a Catholic point of view, which of course they should do, and that's great. But they actually have a class that's that's based on this textbook that is about the relationship between mm -hmm. faith and science. And uh, it's just a, it's just an excellent textbook. Um, uh, Chris Bagwell does lots of other great stuff. Uh, and so I, I just, you know, throw his, throw his name into Google and, and ask about faith and science and you'll come up with lots of good stuff. I've had him as a guest on my own podcast. Um, but, uh, but definitely check out his textbook, faith, mm -hmm. reason, and, and science. Yeah. But anything else that you think would really be good to, uh, to share before we uh, kind of close this off? Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is, is well, it's just repeating something we've already said. We don't need to be in a defensive posture here. Like we, we've got the goods. Uh, if, if we, if we present it as basically positive from the beginning, 
then those few questions that that get put against us, you know, in middle and high school, we'll just be well equipped to deal with them. But we should we should lay the foundation for that. If 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 we let the world basically give our kids its story about the relationship between faith and science, then when evolution and the Big Bang come up, we're really on our back foot. Mm -hmm. uh, and even if we manage to convince a couple people with good information, we may not have countered the whole general thrust. Uh, but if if we've done the 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 positive work from the beginning, uh, the you know the Christian worldview that led to the development of science in the first place, you know, if we're inculcating that from kindergarten on, then then we're really well equipped. Uh, and then, you know what, vocations in science, you know, if we if we're producing from our Catholic schools, Catholic uh, doctors and and physicists and engineers and, you know, that's part of our contribution to the flourishing of society. And we need people in all of those fields who are who who do not follow scientism. Because a lot of those fields can be sort of crippled by bad thinking about the relationship of science and, and other things. And we saw this in the pandemic in our in our tragic, it, you know, if you wanted to plan for another pandemic, having good vaccines is one thing. Understanding mass communication and, and social dynamics, I think, is actually a bigger thing. And part of that is having people who thought carefully about the relationship between science and the rest of human life. And so I think, it, you know, starting the where we started, but thinking as an end game of having like well-rounded, well-educated Catholics in the world working in scientific fields is a, is a massive win. And the more of those we have, the better. So, you know, that's part of what we're doing, especially once we get to the high school uh, stage yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, I, when I, when I think of this, I'm especially thinking of our, uh, our teachers that are in the classroom that perhaps have, uh, done their teacher formation at a public university. Um, and I think that many of them might feel a little bit more vulnerable, uh, in this area. And so again, uh, you know, we've got great resources that are available, uh, that can help to form, uh, new thought, uh, new processes and, uh, and all of that. Um, so, uh, I just, uh, hope and pray that, that those that are uh, a part of the podcast today will really take advantage of the resources, uh, that you, uh, put forward. Now, let me, I'm, I'm going to put you a little bit on the limb here. Um, <laughs> would you be willing if somebody had a, a really serious question for them to contact you? Absolutely. Yeah, probably the easiest way would be through the Facebook group. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you can, you can email me, um, B-R-E-T-Z or Z if you're in Canada, uh, K-Y, that's like Gretzky. That's what my dad called me when I was little. When oh, so you were Bretzky, huh? Yeah, Bretzky at hotmail.com. You can send me or, uh, at artregina.sk.ca. Um, but finding me on the Facebook group, which is just called making every class Catholic, is probably the easiest way to ask me questions about this kind of thing. Uh, and then your question can, you know, be in a forum with other teachers and you may get other people's insights or help other teachers benefit from the insights that are generated. So, yeah. So really you're a part of a community that's kind of looking at this whole thing uh, together, which is really outstanding. 
Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Brett, this has been fantastic. I just can't thank you enough for being with us again today and uh, to just kind of share with us uh, your heart in this area. Uh, as we said at the beginning, and I know it's at the beginning of that chapter, uh, this is really not just the cutting edge, but the bleeding edge of education in many ways uh, is this whole the whole thing of science uh, in today's society. And it's, it's worth a lot of our time and attention to get this one right. Yeah, you're so right. And again, I think a lot of people use the language, but don't know what's behind it when they say, I choose science. Okay. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, I like cornflakes. Yeah, there's a right. lot of <laughs> lot more behind that one than behind the other, for sure. Right, right. So, well, Brett, thank you so much and uh, look forward to uh, having you back again. Maybe we can kind of rabbit trail in some of these other areas as well. And sure, also for yeah, our have audience, a look at yeah, go ahead. Have a look at the chapters and see which one you'd like to talk about next. I'd, I'd be more than happy to come back. Yeah, I know our, our teachers, I keep, I'm recommending your book everywhere. And a lot awesome. of our teachers Thank are you. so excited because it's one thing to get the theory, but in the second half of the book, you get the practice. You know, what does it look like in English? What does it look like in, you know, social studies, government, language, all of that? I mean, it's amazing how... Uh, those chapters can take and compartmentalize things and and put them into context for those teachers, especially the ones that are more uh, specified in their their subject matter. Right, right. Glad to hear it. Well, anyway, uh, for our uh, audience, uh, I want to again remind you to please subscribe to our podcast and to uh, leave a comment to encourage us toward future programming. Also to follow us on YouTube if you happen to be looking at the video version. So may Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.